The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Nice to be here. I thought this evening that we would talk about wise or compassionate speech. In my Morgan Hill group, we have been talking recently about speech. And it's a huge topic, as you well know. So I thought I would bring to you some of what we have talked about. And I'll talk for a little while, and then we can have a discussion. So as I said, speech is a huge topic. It's something that we practice all of our lives. We never stop practicing wise speech. I used to think, no big deal, you know. I was pretty careful with my speech. I didn't think I, I did much damage. <clears throat> but as the years have gone on, and I've paid closer and closer attention, I see how frequently, how often, there is room for misinterpretation, misunderstanding, things to be heard other than what I intended, or for me to hear other than what the other person intended. And it's magnified, of course, with email and texting, where there's no body language, no facial expression, no other way of understanding what's being said than just what's printed, what's typed. And so sometimes I think with all the possibility for misunderstanding, it's amazing that there isn't more. (laughs) And so, of course, no matter how hard we try, any of us, there are going to be times that we're misunderstood or that we misunderstood. And so then it becomes, I think, very important. What do we do? How do we respond? How do we repair, if you will, when there is a rift? Often, our tendency is just to come back with a quick answer or a defensive answer, and that only serves to escalate the problem. And so how can we respond when someone reacts to us? How can we respond in a way that will de-escalate, that will not create any more misunderstanding, but will allow things to smooth out? Sometimes it's a simple apology. Just, I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry that whatever you heard it that way, or I said it that way, or that you understood it that way. That's not what I meant. Let me explain. Sometimes, you know, I'm sorry is not necessarily appropriate, but maybe an explanation is. An attempt to understand how I was misunderstood, or how what I said um, somehow affected the other person. I had an example earlier this week where 
what I said that I said kind of matter-of-factly, um, but it really affected the other person. And when I got a response, I was surprised. And so my way of responding was to explain and to say, I can understand how you would be concerned or upset or whatever word I used. Surprised, I guess it was. Because I was, re- I was surprised <laughs> by your response. I, looking back, which of course I have a lot, I wasn't sensitive enough to how the other person might respond. It wasn't that what I said was false or was harsh or untimely or whatever, but I wasn't sensitive to the impact that it might have on this other person. If I had been, I could have softened it. I could have said more to make it less whatever, dramatic or strong. I could have I could have said it differently. Or maybe at that particular time not said it at all. Maybe it would have been better to wait. Wait until the situation was absolutely clear before I said anything. So even when our intention is good, we can say things that get taken in a way we didn't intend. And so being sensitive to who we're speaking with, being sensitive, whether it's one person, two, or a group, being sensitive to how what we say might be heard. And then being able, perhaps, to withhold it. In Morgan Hill, I have asked people, you know, each week to pay attention to speech over the next week and just see what you notice. Not critically or judgmentally, just just pay attention. And one person talked about by doing that, by being mindful and paying attention, there were times that she withheld speech. She didn't say anything. Times that in the past she might have said something and that might have (laughs) created a situation, but she just withheld it and therefore nothing happened. It, It got dropped. Another woman said something very interesting that I had never thought about before. You know, we talk a lot these days about road rage or about encountering people on, especially the freeway. And this had happened to her. I don't know the exact situation, but something where, you know, someone had cut her off or cut across two or three lanes or something like that. And what she withheld was a gesture. (laughs) 
definitely a form of communication and one that in the past she might have used. But because of our talking about wise speech and expanding it, she was able to withhold that gesture and just let the situation go by. She didn't respond in any way. And that was probably safer, (laughs) certainly a lot more pleasant, she said. So wise speech can encompass many ways we communicate. Speech happens to be the most common. We all speak a lot every day. And so that's the most common communication. However, as you know, we all communicate all the time in many different ways through our facial expressions. How we lift our eyebrows, whether we smile or don't. Whether we nod or don't. We communicate with body language. And sometimes our body language doesn't match the words that we're saying. There's a disconnect or we're not congruent. And often that can suggest that what we're saying perhaps is not congruent with what we're thinking or what we're feeling. It might be what we think we should say, but inside it's not really what we're feeling. And there's, you know, there's an understanding that the body doesn't lie. So knowing ourselves well, knowing our beliefs, our views, our ideas, our biases, our prejudices, these things that are behind what we say. This becomes very important because we might consciously think that what we say, you know, is not harsh, might be gentle and truthful, but it may not be consistent with the impression we want to give. Sometimes, maybe often, our speech, our, what we say, our responses, come out of our ideas about things, our beliefs about things, our stereotypical ideas, perhaps. And they are not necessarily true. Our ideas and our beliefs are not necessarily true. They're just ideas and beliefs, right? And if we're speaking with somebody that doesn't necessarily see it that way, it might be quite offensive. If we're aware, if we're very aware of our ideas and beliefs, 
we don't hold so tightly to them, then we can say things, we can express things in a much different way. We might say, well, from my perspective, da-da-da-da, rather than this is the way it is. Or we might not say a lot of things that we would otherwise have. We don't just let things come out. So understanding ourselves, knowing ourselves, we all have biases. We all have prejudices. That's part of our conditioning. But do we know it? (laughs) Do we realize what they are? Do we understand ourselves so that our prejudices don't just come rolling out at inappropriate times. Similar to that is our intention. Paying attention to what is our intention for speaking or for saying whatever we say. You know, in Buddhist practice, we put a lot of emphasis on intention. What is our intention for what we do or what we say? And sometimes... When we recognize an intention, that may be a cue to us that we don't want to say. Or, if we're very aware of our intention, then we can say it in such a way, communicate it in such a way, that um, that that intention is brought forth. You know, as well as I do, how we emphasize something, how we say something, can make all the difference in how it's heard or how it's understood. The old joke, right, about, well, of course I love you. (laughs) That hardly sounds like love. (laughs) So being aware of our intention. You probably have heard, know, that when the Buddha spoke about wise speech, and he did so on several occasions, wise speech is one of the precepts, and it's also the third step on the Eightfold Path, he suggested that it was not just about being truthful. That was important. Perhaps that was most important, as it is in all of the world's traditions, being honest, not lying or not telling false things. But he expanded it and said that our speech should also be kind and gentle, not harsh. It should be beneficial, it should be helpful, it should be timely, And we should pay attention to whether the other person or persons can hear it. Because we might be saying something that's truthful, and it might ultimately be helpful, but if it's very clear that the other person or persons aren't going to hear it, then better not to say it. 
sometimes they can cause more harm than good if we speak when it's not time. (laughs) It's not appropriate because it's not going to be heard or it might be misinterpreted. So keeping our attention on ourselves and the person or persons to whom we're speaking. So that it's not just isolated. We're not just speaking in an isolated way. But we're paying attention. There's a man in Buddhist practice, um, Gregory Kramer, who has written a book and does workshops on insight dialogue. And he talks very much about this. How do we keep our attention on ourselves as well as the other person? So we're aware of what's going on with us before we respond. And we can listen. We can listen intently to the other person and keep some focus on ourselves so that we're very aware, say, if we're getting worked up, we're getting angry or we're getting fearful or uncomfortable or whatever. We can be aware of that And maybe pause, maybe take a moment, and just be quiet before we say anything or before we continue. It's very helpful, very helpful practice. Because so often in the course of our speech, you know, we're going back and forth, and we may be getting excited, revved up, and if we're not aware of it, if we're not careful, then we might say something harshly or inappropriately or hurtfully um, without intending to, but because we aren't being aware. So the Buddha also suggested that life was short and therefore we should not waste our time with idle chatter. So what's idle chatter? (laughs) Strictly, you know, um, chatter that isn't useful, that isn't necessary. And he included in that gossip, talking about people, saying things that, that we may not know are true or not. I find this one um, interesting to work with because I've also found that what might be classified as idle chatter is a way for people to connect. Sometimes in a situation where um, you may not, it may not be appropriate to get into anything very heavy, but it is appropriate to make contact. And so... I'm thinking particularly of the locker room where I swim. (laughs) Oftentimes, we engage in what could be considered idle chatter, like the temperature of the water and the weather, if it's sunny or rainy or cold or whatever. Um, But it's a way of connecting. It's a way of acknowledging, yeah, you're here and I'm here. And rather than showering, getting dressed without saying anything, 
we can connect on a very simple, very mundane almost way. And so I see that as connecting speech, even though it may not be terribly beneficial or terribly uh, important. It's a way of connecting. So as with everything in our practice, it's for us to pay attention to and to work with what is, whether it's idle speech or honest speech or harsh speech or whatever, what is true for me? What is gentle and compassionate, caring speech in this situation? And what might not be? So <clears throat> Thich Nhat Hanh tends to expand on precepts, and he has a couple of extra things to say about speech. You know, in our tradition, Theravada, we have five precepts. In Thich Nhat Hanh's tradition, he has 14. And that's because it's not that they're different, but he expands on them. So he says this, which is not directly saying speech, but it is about speech. Do not think the knowledge you presently possess is changeless, absolute truth. Avoid being narrow-minded and bound to present views. Learn and practice non-attachment from views in order to be open to receive others' viewpoints. Truth is found in life and not merely in conceptual knowledge. Be ready to learn throughout your entire life and to observe reality in yourself and in the world at all times. So imagine how different our speech would be if we hold these ideas. That truth is in life. It's not fixed. And that truth changes. Our ideas, our beliefs can change. And if we want to be open to other people, then it's helpful to recognize that, that what I feel strongly about is just what I feel strongly about. And it may not be what you feel strongly about at all. You may see it very differently. If I hold that I'm right, this is the truth, then you're going to get that from me. You're going to know that I'm not really listening to you or not really respecting what you have to say, how you feel about something. That will come across in my speech for sure. But if I am willing to hold, well, this is how I see things right now. I may not in 10 years or one year, but it's how I see it now. Then I can be open to how you see it now. And we can have a dialogue. We can have a discussion in which hopefully both of us go away 
uh, feeling heard and understood. I remember one time many years ago having a very intense conversation with someone and I was really enjoying it. I don't recall what it was about, but we were both, um, uh, I think, straightforward. And, and at the end, the other person said to me, wow, that was really intense. <laughs> and for me, it was, it was just a really good conversation. I was surprised by that reaction. What had been, I thought, just a good discussion was very, very intense for that other person. So Thich Nhat Hanh also says, do not utter words that can create discord and cause the community to break. This is one of the five really, really bad things we can do (laughs) to create disharmony, disconnection in the Sangha. Make every effort to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. So being careful that our speech does not create discord or does not create... Um, a schism, a problem in the Sangha, making every effort to clear things up if there is a misunderstanding, not just walking away and letting it be, or not just, you know, throwing up our hands and, oh, well, that person always hears things wrong or whatever it might be. That so often happens. So often I have seen people just um, make no effort whatsoever to clarify something, but just turn around and um, dismiss the other person or dismiss what was said and let it be. And then, of course, the misunderstanding continues and there may be hard feelings. And so often, just... uh, a few minutes of explaining, oh, oh, that's how you heard me. That's not what I meant. Oh, that's what you were thinking. I was thinking, da 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 can clear it up. And then there's no hard feelings. And then he says, do not say untruthful things for the sake of personal interest or to impress people. Do not utter words that cause division and hatred. Do not spread news that you do not know to be certain. Do not criticize or condemn things that you are not sure of. Always speak truthfully and constructively. Have the courage to speak out about situations of injustice, even when doing so may threaten your own safety. That's a big one, isn't it? So another big piece of wise speech is knowing when to be quiet 
and when to speak. Sometimes it's very important that we speak if there's an injustice. You know, uh, if we walk by a situation where a child is being abused, it's not okay just to walk by and let it happen. Then it becomes a real challenge. How do we intervene? How do we say something to stop what's happening but not create discord or not, not create an enemy, not blame someone? So I remember an example I heard many years ago of a woman who, to whom this happened. She was in an airport. And a young mother, obviously very frustrated, was, uh, I can't remember exactly, was spanking maybe her child. And this woman went over and said something very compassionate to the mom. Like, you must be so tired. You must be so frustrated. Let me take your child for a few minutes and you sit down and relax or get some coffee or something like that. That's compassionate speech, right? She didn't make the woman wrong. She didn't embarrass her. But she did intervene. She did not let the abuse go on. She intervened. But in such a compassionate way. And, of course, the situation de-escalated. And she kept the child for a little while until the mom was calm again and then gave her back. So it can be very important at times that we do speak, that withholding, not speaking, can be more damaging than speaking up. Of course, there are many, many times that it's much more useful to withhold our speech. (laughs) Many situations where we say too much and what's called for is to be quiet. Perhaps to be quiet and listen. Because listening, deep listening, again, compassionate listening, is a huge part of wise speech. How can we speak wisely if we haven't really deeply listened. And that, of course, means listening to more than just the words, but to what's behind the words. What is the person really saying? Some of you may have heard of Marshall Rosenberg and nonviolent communication. Many people in our tradition have studied uh, Marshall Rosenberg's um, book and way of communicating. It's an interesting title, is it? Nonviolent. Suggesting that our communication with each other be gentle and kind, not harsh and hurtful and violent. Our communication can be violent without any physical contact, of course. But if what we're saying 
is harsh, hurtful, unkind or untrue, then it's in a way violent, isn't it? So another big piece that often gets overlooked, I think, is how we speak to ourselves. Many of us are not very kind or compassionate to ourselves. And if we're not, of course, ultimately, that leads to our not being kind and compassionate to others. So being very aware, this we develop through our mindfulness practice, right? What are we saying to ourselves? And maybe more importantly, how are we saying it? Simple things, simple things. I have to catch myself all the time. So easy, I drop something, or I try to carry too many things down the stairs and something falls, or what, I do something seemingly dumb. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, my grandson was staying with me, and I did something, I can't remember what it was, but whatever it was, you know, it was something silly, something dumb, and what came out was, damn! (laughs) Well, of course, he caught that, and he laughed, oh, Grandma, you said damn! (laughs) And I was immediately sorry that it had come out, but (laughs) <laughs> it does from time to time but, but more than that I mean damn is relatively harmless um, it's so easy to chastise myself for forgetting something for going past a freeway exit for Whatever, right? Forgetting to ask somebody something or all the little things that we do that is so easy to criticize ourselves for. But what effect does that have on us? That does affect us. If we're constantly criticizing ourselves, that has an effect on us. It has an effect on how we see ourselves, how we feel about ourselves. And that, in turn, affects how we communicate with others. And so it's part of compassionate speech to be sure that we're compassionate with ourselves. And sometimes that's the most difficult. I was talking to someone today and she was talking about having recognized something and I said something like, you know, how does that feel to you? can't remember what she said. She kind of looked at me, I think, like, what did I mean? And I said, you know, does that bring out compassion for yourself? No. (laughs) It was so quick, so automatic. No. (laughs) Like, what are you thinking? (laughs) But that's so important. Yeah, to be compassionate to ourselves. It's not only important for us. It's actually, it becomes a gift to other people. Because if we're compassionate with ourselves, then we're more likely to be compassionate with others. And if we're not, then we're more likely not to be. 
So let me see. Well, just one other thing related to truthfulness, and that is being true to ourselves. It's not only important to be truthful with others, but to be true to ourselves. What is our truth? What is true for us? And then speaking from that place rather than maybe what I should feel what I think you want me to feel or to think or to say but what is really true for me and that again comes from paying attention to ourselves knowing ourselves and paying attention to ourselves our bodies our emotions perhaps as we're speaking and, and we can, you know, with some awareness, just notice, am, am I being true to myself? Or am I saying what I think that person wants me to say? Am I saying what I think they want to hear? And denying my reality, my truth. So it's, it's a matter of being genuine. It's a matter of being congruent so that what we say matches who we are and how the body is expressing itself. You know, you can tell when someone's congruent and when they're not, right? Most of the time. I mean, we can all get conned. But a lot of the time we can tell when somebody is saying something that they don't really feel or they don't really mean. It tends to be kind of obvious. And that can uh, make people not really trust us, not really value what we say. Most of us would rather hear the truth, nicely, but the truth, than have somebody tell us what they think we want to hear. Isn't that, isn't that mostly true? Yeah. So being congruent, being... Um, being genuine, being honest with ourselves so we can be honest with others. So, we have a few minutes. Um, Are there things you'd like to share? Say? Ask? Regarding the um, the question of small talk and uh, the fact that you you're very right that uh, sometimes you you need to break the ice or keep something flowing so you don't appear surly. Um, you think that was really the Buddha said that because he was talking to his monastic sangha, where it's a totally different situation um, that. They know each other, supposedly, uh, and, and that small talk would not be appropriate in the way he structured it. 
I think what he really meant was to pay attention to our speech and not to just babble away um, for no reason. You know, sometimes people will tend to talk a lot because they're uncomfortable, because they're nervous, and it's really kind of useless. You know, it's just, it's just chatter. It's just idle chatter. I had a roommate many, many years ago in college that did that one night. We had company over for dinner. And my gosh, she just talked the entire time. And most of it was pretty inconsequential. And after our friends left, she explained to me, she realized what she had done, and she said, I do that when I get nervous. I just, I just talk. Um, it was, I really appreciated her explaining because then I understood. Otherwise, it was very annoying to have somebody just chattering away and not, not um, part of the conversation, you know, but just, just idle chatter. <laughs> so I think, and when he said, you know, life is short. Don't waste it with idle chatter. Don't just chatter away, as we say, to hear your own voice. (laughs) Make, for the most part, what we say meaningful. And I think when it's small talk that is meant for connection, it's meaningful. Yeah. Did you have another thought? No? Along those lines, um, if you're on the receiving end of a lot of idle chatter, and I, I found myself in that situation, and you know, I really would just rather not be in the midst of the mm-hmm. idle chatter, but I, I do find myself staying there. I, I guess it's out of a sense. So I just want to be respectful because they're they're sharing in a way they feel is appropriate. And what uh, sort of guidance would you give in that situation? Is is there kind of a right speech, a kindness, something you could say to uh, put an end to it if there seems to be no end? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had that happen a couple weeks ago, and I just said, gee, it's about time for me to go. It was very convenient. (laughs) It's tough, I think. I think, because we do want to be kind. We do want to be respectful. Um, I think it it really depends on the situation and the person. You know, if it's somebody that you have a pretty good relationship with, you might be able to say something rather direct. Um, If not, then... (laughs) If you can find a way to gently change the conversation... Or, um, or interject something. I find that not easy. There are many people that are much more skilled at it than I am. Yeah, I, uh, I probably tend to let things go on too long because I'm uncomfortable. I don't know how to skillfully <laughs> suggest that this is not the way I would like the conversation to go. Um, or enough already, you know. It's tough, yeah. It's challenging. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and yet, sometimes I think it really is important, as uncomfortable as I am, I think to myself, you know, but it's important that I interrupt this because this train of thought or speaking is not helpful. And if I just sit and let the person go on and on, I'm colluding. You know, I'm allowing that it's okay with me, and it's really not. And so I do try to find a way in that situation to say something that will, you know, get it off that track or or somehow (laughs) suggest that, you know, time is going by and we need to we need to hear from other people or we need to get on with something. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm wondering, so oftentimes like, I'll get into a situation where like, I impulsively want to say something. <laughs> um, and... And it may not be like a bad thing or anything like that, mm-hmm. but it may be just kind of speaking just to speak. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you have any any tips for like, like I know like if you're if you become more mindful, more aware, like mm-hmm. you can put a little bit of a gap there. But I'm wondering if you have like any um, any like advice in terms of like putting space in there and then really recognizing whether or not you know it should be said. I don't know if that's too general. But. <laughs> Well, I think you're right. It's the mindfulness. Um, Not just at the moment, but making it a practice to be mindful of our speech. Because I think it can be very difficult in the moment. But if we have been practicing with mindful speech and practicing um, not speaking uh, just impulsively, but waiting until there's something really to say, then it's easier to do. But like with anything in practice, if we haven't been practicing, (laughs) then it's difficult to do in the moment. And so consciously being aware of speech, you know, like hopefully after tonight, you'll go out and for several days be aware of speech, not just yours, but others. It's helpful, I find, to be aware of how other people speak. We can learn from examples, both positively and, and not so positively. And just being aware of speaking and seeing the effect that it has on people. Seeing um, how people respond. Um, and, and playing with it, you know? Sometimes not saying something just just to see what happens, just to see how it is not to speak. You know, if you tend to be impulsive, then just make it a practice not to speak, even though you think it's so important that you say something. Don't. And see how it feels. See what happens. Or the opposite, you know. If, if um, you often don't say something, then experiment with saying something. Push yourself and see what happens. Um, as a quick follow-up to that, like, I think something I forgot to mention was, like, especially now with like social media and like texting, is like most of the things that I put up or other people put up 
are not meaningful, but they may seem meaningful. Um, <laughs> you know, or they or they like the intention behind it may get skewed a little bit. But I, don't, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that because it's such a big part of like you know what we do now. It is. <laughs> mm. Again, I guess it's the intention. You know, it may not seem meaningful, but if your intention is to connect or your intention is is helpful, beneficial, that's, that's a good gauge. I'm not a very good one to ask about that because I don't really use much of social media. Partly for that reason, because what I have seen is like, who cares? <laughs> uh, but people say, well, I use it to stay in touch with my children or my <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. And there's much talked about these books and courses and huge attention given to it is a core of uh, you know, a lot of what Buddhism is about, a lot mm-hmm. of what you know the imbalance is about in life and so on. And my technical question is that when you when you when you try to be compassionate with yourself, so to speak, um, you can get pretty self conscious and you can be really fumbling around for some Kind of handle on what you're doing to actually do that. Mm-hmm. Just saying, I'm okay. I'm alright. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, I know that you're very adept in practicing this, and you're not, you know, mentioning it out of uh, small in a small way. What are some of the things that you do to cultivate that that are really practical? A couple of things. One, like with everything, noticing how much of the time you're not compassionate. Noticing when we don't do something is the first step towards learning to do it. So in the example I gave with this person I was talking to earlier, you know, it was something that um, happened when she was very young. And she tended to, you know, dismiss it. And not see how that may have really affected who she is now, how she is now. And, and by seeing that, then what I was pointing out was, you know, can you have some compassion for yourself when you see what you went through, what the situation was? Another way, sometimes that's very hard for people, but what I often have people do is ask them to imagine that I or somebody else am telling them what they're telling me and how would they respond. And invariably, they respond with compassion. And so it's a way to see that, um, that what they might feel compassionate towards somebody else about, they aren't giving to themselves. But if they can see that the situation is or calls for compassion 
and they see that they're not giving it to themselves, again, that can help to begin to give it to themselves. It's a process, like everything. Does that help? <laughs> Do you have any other tips? It's just very elusive. Thank you. <laughs> Well, I think the strongest is is seeing how you would feel about somebody else in the same position. I think that's just like people have told me that have taken the compassionate course that that a phrase that's often repeated is just like me, just like me. So Uh, we could perhaps do it the opposite. Just like you, or just like someone else. I, I feel just like you. As a way of seeing um, that I have, I have struggles. I have difficulties. Just like you do. And I can be compassionate to you, so I can learn to be compassionate to me. Perhaps, as I was saying that, I thought, perhaps instead of saying to me just compassion, just having compassion, period, not designating who it's for, but just having compassion for that situation, for any difficult situation, compassion for that. And remember that compassion doesn't mean we're saying it's okay or dismissing what actually happened, but compassion, feeling how someone else might feel, can help us to feel that same for ourselves. And as I say, it's a practice. It doesn't happen overnight. Um... We have to practice over and over and over again. And remember, remember the teachings that, that we are a part of everything. And each of us is no less, no more than anybody else. You know, as the Buddha said about loving kindness, you could... You could travel the whole world over and never find anybody more deserving of your loving kindness than yourself. He never suggested that we leave ourselves out of anything. Always, always. You know, whether it's generosity or gratitude or compassion or kindness or whatever, ourselves as well as everyone else. We're... Because... It's funny, it's paradoxical, but if we leave ourselves out, we're making ourselves special. And if we make ourselves part of everything, just like everybody else, we lose the specialness. We're just another person like everybody else. Okay. It's three minutes after, so we probably should stop. Thank you all.
Have safe travels and a good week.